but I had four simultaneous strokes and I say simultaneous because they were all within a 12-hour period and the headache and the clock got progressively worse affecting more of my brain so at nine o'clock in the morning I had three strokes all together at the same time one affected my ears one affected my eyesight and one affected my balance and my fourth stroke which happened when I was in A&E waiting to be seen was a brainstem stroke after a day they tried to make contact with me so they reduced all the uh, medication I was on and brought me round and I was first met with two Australian speech therapists seconds after I opened my eyes and discovered that I didn't have an infection of the paramedics as thought I had and when they brought me into the um, uh, emergency care I actually they told me I, I had a brainstem stroke which I didn't know what it was I was only able to blink with my eyelids so it's rather a devastating situation and that continued on for three months when I was brought out of ICU after 10 days I was transferred to Lewisham Stroke Ward where they basically stabilized me and we had some rather rapid improvements I say rapid they were quick but they were minor ones but they were they were enough for them to think David's gonna look like he's gonna survive this and they put me into um, rehab in Putney. The very first movement was, unbeknownst to me, I began to feel aches and pains, which I didn't know was a good sign. Because when you're paralyzed, inside and out, because my, my lungs are paralyzed, my throat paralyzed, swallow everything. And you just feel like you're floating, like you're in some kind of water treatment therapy where you're floating around. But gradually I started to feel the bed sheets under me and on my chest the sheets because you can't feel those either. Hello and welcome to Stroke Stories, a podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. In this episode we hear from the Reverend David Hazeldean. Currently living in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey, David suffered a stroke at the age of 46. I've been involved in property development and lots of sports. I'm a very positive, active, go-for-it person. And because we were going into the church and doing ministry there, you don't go into the church for money. It's very poorly paid and it's a real test of your heart and your convictions. So myself and my wife, we had to kind of do something on the side to help bump up the salary, which was property development. So we did both of them at the same time. And we did lots of community work, work for the council between ministries, but for the last 10 years, or let's say 10 years before the strokes, I was ordained, trained at Oxford University with the Baptist Union of Great Britain and was passed through my second church in East London when the strokes happened. I had four simultaneous strokes, and I say simultaneous because they were all within a 12-hour period and the headache and the clock got progressively worse, affecting more of my brain. So at 9 o'clock in the morning... I had three strokes all together at the same time. One affected my ears, one affected my eyesight, and one affected my balance. And my fourth stroke, which happened when I was in A&E waiting to be seen, was a brainstem stroke uh, of the pons area, which is the worst stroke that you can have. And it was class medically a devastating stroke. So uh, I was unconscious for a, a whole day when I was raced around London to try and get various uh, operations and injections into me. They, the injections worked, but the operations didn't. The thrombectomy failed. 
So my wife was given 10% chance of me surviving. And that survival would look like 24-7 care in a nursing home for the rest of my life. But they didn't expect me to live more than a month or so. Because I said he's most likely to die of other strokes. And they were saying at the same time that I had a chest infection. So um, after a day, they tried to make contact with me. So they reduced all the uh, medication I was on and brought me round. And I was first met with two Australian speech therapists seconds after I opened my eyes and discovered that I didn't have an infection as the paramedics had thought I had. And when they brought me into the um, uh, emergency care, I actually they told me I had, I had a brainstem stroke, which I didn't know what it was. But within seconds of talking to them, I realized it was really bad because they said, word for word, we've been sent in to try and make contact with you, which is what aliens kind of say from another planet. So that was rather quite shocking. And then to realize I couldn't move, I was completely paralyzed. And I had what they call locked-in syndrome. So I was only able to blink with my eyelids. So it's rather a devastating situation. And that continued on for three months. When I was brought out of ICU, after 10 days, I was transferred to Lewisham Stroke Ward, where they basically stabilised me. And we had some rather rapid improvements. I say rapid, they were quick, but they were minor ones. But they were they were enough for them to think David's going to look like he's going to survive this. And they put me into um, rehab in Putney. So I spent seven months there during the first wave of COVID, which I caught and survived. And ended up being able to walk out of the hospital. I did a five-step kind of ceremonial walk before I collapsed back into my wheelchair. And from that day to this, I've been recovering at home uh, with one operation on my foot. And that, so that's a story in a nutshell. I'm retired now on ill health grounds, but I'm back up. I'm preaching. I'm traveling. I'm soon to be driving again, and I'm walking free hands. So I still really feel I'm involved in ministry. I'm not running churches. I'm still preaching around churches, sharing my story. Hence, that's why I wrote my book. After being diagnosed with locked-in syndrome, David made a remarkable recovery. The very first movement was, unbeknownst to me, I began to feel aches and pains, which I didn't know was a good sign. Because when you're paralysed, inside and out, because my, my lungs are paralysed, my throat paralysed, swallow everything. And you just feel like you're floating, like you're in some kind of water treatment therapy where you're floating around. But gradually I started to feel the bed sheets under me and on my chest, the sheets, because you can't feel those either. And then one one night, my right foot began to feel quite light, just all of a sudden. And it makes you want to kind of investigate what it is. And so I tried to move it and it just came back perfect A1 immediately. And the next day, the ankle received the up, down, and the right, left movement. So it wasn't just twinkling toes, as I'd had the night before, but it was the whole ankle, 100%. And so that the next day, my dad said to me when he came to visit, why are you moving your ankle so much? So I blinked back to him through an alphabet board, because that's how I was taught to communicate. Because I can. When you're 100% parallel and can't move a thing, you want to move anything you can. So... That movement was so, so wonderful. So that was the first sign. And then gradually, it seemed in a non-medical way that paralysis kind of moved up my right side, over my head and down my left side. So my left foot is the worst affected. 
that's not how it worked, but that's how it kind of seemed to me. So then my right hand began to move a few days later, just very tightly, very, very, very lightly. So people were shaking my hand and I was gripping it, but then they would pull their hand away and I just couldn't hold them. So we're talking very minute things. My shoulder, my right shoulder just started to move a little bit. And then my swallow started to happen spontaneously without my control. So there are various things that the therapists were able to begin to work on, but really for the first month or so there was nothing to show for it i was just existing being cared for and had tiny tiny little minute movements which i didn't really think was much apart from this this ankle after seven months in hospital and rehab david was in a position to return home by that time i progressed all through their electronic walking aid to help you stand and to help get weight through your feet and i learned to sit up and get out of bed and i could put um one sock on but not the other so I, and i learned a one-handed technique to put on a t-shirt um i could stand long enough to have a shower but i couldn't balance so i had to lean against the shower surrounds and my wife had to help me shower but the wonderful thing was about six weeks before i was due to leave rehab the ot who had journeyed with me through this kind of seven month rehabilitation she said we think we can get you home without need for a care package and because of that, we decided to get some outside funding from NHS England to help you stay on longer for a further six weeks, which me and my wife were joyous about. Yes, I wanted to go home, and yes, I was greatly missing them, but to stay there and get their 24-7 care and to be able to come home without needing any kind of care package was fantastic. So I was 100% independent in their eyes, but day-to-day, -day I still needed some help to do certain things. But it, and it wasn't until the following Christmas, so this is a full year, I'd say 14 months after the strokes, that I got up with my walker and started putting in kind of active walking moments, say 10 to 15 minutes, trying to progress it further and further, just to build up the strength of my legs. Um, and so I've, I've in one of the chapters in my book is called Road to Walking, because the physio, who I'm still in contact with, she kind of led me through this, rehabilitation process of learning to stand feel weight through your feet balance and then take steps and we need a various casts and things to help with ankles and i've had one operation since which she fortunately set me up for and wonderfully wasn't put back due to covid i'm not sure many of the listeners will believe in a higher power or supernatural being but for me there was just so many things that linked together and made things amazing that, uh, and that was one of them, just not able to have any problems with waiting times. It's fantastic. One of the other wonderful things, while this was all going on for me, my wife was feeling quite helpless in the situation, but had been given all the time off from work. She worked in the cabinet office in Westminster. She'd been given all the time off she needed to help me. So she came to visit every day. And her devotion and the family around her really inspired me and helped me stay positive. But when COVID hit and the hospitals went into lockdown, she actually started to feel more helpful because we had to relocate out of the church house because I could no longer minister. We worked out that I wasn't going to go back into ministry, day-to-day -day running churches. So we had to relocate back to on Thames and buy a house. So she had to buy a small bedroom, a two-bedroom bungalow, which is all we could afford. But because we had actually specialised in doing bungalows up before, this was music to our ears. So she actually put two extensions on it and it's a, a glorious one with bifold doors, and it looks a fantastic thing, but 
for her, it's so good for she felt she could contribute as a team effort. And I think family and devotion from your family and loved ones is such an important point in your recovery going forward. As to is having purpose. Some people have got a purpose outside faith. Uh, they've got kids, they've got career, they've got hopes and dreams for other things. But my, my faith and being a goal-oriented person, I was able to work through all my activities with various coaches that I had, uh, various physiotherapists and stuff, on a kind of a, a goal-oriented basis. They worked out the kind of person I was and adapted everything to that. And that, I just found that so, so helpful. Coming up, David talks about losing his sight. My sight loss, I don't think it's going to get any better. I've had quite a few meetings with St George's Hospitals about my, my eye. And they've explained to me the length of time things take to get better. But I'm, I've pretty much found out what silence I have, and I don't think it's going to be prevented from driving. But I just want to be safe with myself and my strength and control my, my left limbs before I vent, venture out onto the road. And plus, I want to get stronger so when I actually drive somewhere, I can then do something when I'm at the location. I don't want to drive somewhere and just do nothing and come home again. So they kind of go together. And about his wife journaling his recovery. When she was um, first told by the doctors about how terrible my situation was, her mind was so, so much like mush. It was just going in one ear and out the others. And she met so many consultants about different things that she started to write it down in a book her friend gave her. And so we got a really very accurate record, like a diary of, of what happened to me and how it developed. I've not written a book like a diary. I've just written it in subject headings and things that have happened. But that really gave us a very accurate feedback of, of what had happened, coupled with my my memories afterwards. So yeah, that's that's the basic thrust of the book. David is pleased with the progress he's made. It's really good because I would say I'm 60 65% recovered in that my left side is still fairly weak. My left side now today as we speak is where my right side was after two months in rehab which was like three years ago so it's a long way behind but i'm able to walk around walk by the the, the thames have a pub lunch with my wife and i can i've been back preaching and been making social media videos so i'm still able to do everything but my balance is really kind of severe i feel like i'm on the english channel in a boat and i have a bit of sight loss which means i'm not not comfortable driving yet so i haven't done that yet but i will do um in the new year so I'm I'm on benefits and I, I'm signed off officially from work for life and retired. I've got ill health pensions. But within myself, I had a few episodes of PTSD when I was in uh, hospital because I heard noises that were similar to the tracheotomy that I had. And they used to have to suck out the saliva in my throat so I wouldn't drown in my saliva. And I used to have that about seven or eight times a day and three or four times a night. And when I kind of heard those noises, it kind of triggered me off. So I had to go through a process of myself thinking, how was I going to deal with things that triggered me? And I managed over a couple of days just to, with also with the help of a psychiatrist, to kind of deal with that process. And I, fortunately, one of the classic things was I had to kind of think through the issue. Of, if I'm watching a game show at home and they say, let's just lock your answer in, let's lock it in. And that, that phrase locked in, would kind of trigger me at first, but in the in the rehab, but it, it now it doesn't at all. We laugh and joke about it because just having worked through those things with the psychotherapist and with my wife and in my own mind, I've realized that you can be free of those PTSD issues if you think them through. 
But I did. I was actually watching a film the other night on Apple TV, and I had uh, a quick five-minute episode of um, uh, PTSD when someone was on a plane and stabbed the pen in the someone's chest to release air to help them breathe, breathe and all the blood came out of it. It just reminded me of breathing through a thin tube, having a tracheostomy in my throat and breathing through a tube for six months because I was near by mouth for six months. And it just triggered me and, and it only lasted two or three minutes and I got, regathered myself and carried on. And now that's something else that started being able to conquer. So I feel very, very positive. I, I'm pretty sure medically how my muscles are working and how I'm doing, I'm going to get back to 90%. I don't think my right ear is lost its treble not um ability to take in high notes high frequency notes in my right ear so i've got a hearing aid and my sight loss i don't think it's going to get any better i've had quite a few meetings with st george's hospitals about my my eye and they've explained to me the length of time things take to get better but I'm, i've pretty much found out what silence i have and i don't think it's going to be preventive from driving but i just want to be safe with myself and my strength and control my my left limbs before I vent, venture out onto the road. And plus, I want to get stronger so when I actually drive somewhere, I can then do something when I'm at the location. I don't want to drive somewhere and just do nothing and come home again. So they kind of go together. And David has written a book about his experience. The book is called Don't Get Excited But, and there's a story behind that. And it was in the process in which a speech and language therapist was trying to wean me off my tracheostomy. Um, my trachea, and they put they have a, a balloon in your throat which tries to block as much of the fluids in your airways as possible from going into your lungs. But when you come off the trachea, obviously you have to have that balloon taken down, and so you're very, very vulnerable to this kind of sensation of drowning, getting fluid in your lungs. And if you can't swallow it away or cough it away, then you're you're in, in danger. So I, I I was feeling very vulnerable at this time. And you go through 10 minutes one day, 20 minutes the next day, then 30 minutes, then you do an hour. And you progress over a couple of weeks or months, however long it takes you. But what was happening was whenever my wife came in in the morning and I would tell her about the little progressions that had happened not before, my finger moved, my shoulder moved, my left thigh moved, or I can bend my knee higher, things like that. If I communicated that and blinked that through the alphabet board, she would actually cry or get excited or start clapping, and that would make me cough. And then the people doing the track, the um, stuff on my throat, trying to win me off the track, he would say, that's enough for today. Let's come back to that tomorrow. And it was slowing down the recovery. So every time she arrived, I would start on the, the um, alphabet board. Rather than communicating, I love you, how are you? It would be, don't get excited, but... And she would then go outside of the, the hospital bay, calm herself down, get ready for the exciting news, come back in and remain totally still. And I would just tell her very matter of fact, now my fingers move or feel my grip, it's stronger, things like that. So that's the, the reason behind the book. But the, but the book in itself is really about the devotion of my wife and the role that uh, the sense of purpose and faith played in my journey. It's not, it's written from a vicar's perspective, but it's certainly not a Christian book. It's not a proselytizing book in any way. It's, it's fairly medical in certain places. And at the end, it has lots of links to my social media, which has videos of me walking and talking and comparisons and things like that with my speech and how it's improving. So it's trying to look at the the whole spectrum of getting really how I dealt with various dark times. So I went through a few days of suicidal tendencies. Um, 
and also how I felt with the rehab, how tiring it was, how full on it was, and how I dealt with physical and the mental pain, and how we got through um, COVID and the isolation that came with with COVID. And my wife has written a chapter in too because we realised how important it is for spouses to understand and feel that you've got someone you can connect with and understands you and you can try out how you're feeling and think you've experienced with what my wife has experienced too. But when I came out of hospital, I was directed to join a number of stroke uh, pages on Facebook. I think I'm a member of about six or seven now around the world. And I was absolutely shocked to the core about how many people have divorced after a stroke, how much separation there is in partnerships. And very few people, although there are one or two who experience the same love and devotion as me, but I, I had already written a book before I went into had the strokes as part of my 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 work in ministry, and so I had planned in my head when I was locked in I was going to write a book, and all throughout my recovery because it was so amazing according to the consultants and the nurses they kept saying to me you should write a book you should write a book, so after COVID the first wave uh, kind of almost stopped, I was allowed home leave, and during that home leave time for just weekends only. Back, I was back at rehab in the week, but a home leave at the weekends, and my wife had to learn how to feed me through the drip and how to administer my medication and keep me alive. And so I would just, with my right hand, I could tentatively type a little bit. So I'd write down loads and loads of notes of things that happened that week. And I carried on from my wife left off because when she was um, first told by the doctors about how terrible my situation was, her mind was so so much like mush it was just going in one unit out the others and she met so many consultants about different things that she started to write it down in a book her friend gave her and so we got a really very accurate record like a diary of of what happened to me and how it developed i've not written a book like a diary i've just written it in subject headings and things that have happened but that really gave us a very accurate feedback of, of what had happened coupled with my what my memories afterwards so yeah that's that's the basic thrust of the book. Here's David with his advice for other stroke survivors. My attitude to every kind of therapy and every intervention was why not let's have a go even if it was bizarre or I didn't enjoy it, I wasn't excited by it I said let's have a go why not take everything on on offer and since I've come out of hospital there's been so many hospital appointments because I've just said yes to everything. Yes, you can get exhausted by it all, and sometimes you want to just stop it and just let me just get on with my life. But the more and more you accept, so much is laid on for you that I would encourage people to really take advantage of everything the NHS has to offer because I can't see their praises high enough. It's really, really good. To family members, uh, I would just say that your love and devotion and letting people know you care for them and you want to understand because that understanding is very important. We had a lot of family conferences where my kids have understood how I'm reacting. My wife is learning to understand and they don't understand what I'm going through on a day-to-day basis because they can't feel my body. They want to. But the way we just sat down and talked to each other about our feelings, our emotions, what's upset, or my angry, that continual uh, communication has really, really stood us in good stead. So that's, that's what I'd say about those two things. David's stroke caused him to develop locked-in syndrome, a condition that meant the only movement he could perform was blinking. Since then, he's made huge strides in his recovery and is back preaching and giving talks about his stroke experience. Thank you for supporting us at Stroke Stories. Please do recommend the podcast to those you think it might help. And if you are, 
or you know of a stroke survivor, we'd love it if you have a story you can share. Please get in touch. Our DMs are open on Twitter and Instagram. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.